Good evening. It's been a real blessing to be with you these uh, past evenings. And open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We had a few things to finish up from last night. We were speaking of forgiveness, as you recall. And I was really trying to emphasize the importance of forgiveness that it is the basis of all human relationships because as humans we fail, we disappoint each other, we sometimes hurt each other, and if we can't learn to just let it go, absorb the pain, absorb the indignation, and let the other person go free, just like Jesus did for us, uh, we will not have the kind of relationships God wants us to have. But people say, I just can't forgive, I just can't do it, it's just impossible. I think part of the reason they say that is because they're expecting some feeling of forgiveness. And I told you last night, we have little, if any, control over our feelings. And God never asks us to have any particular feelings. When he says, love your enemy, he says, do good to them that do wrong to you. Pray for them, bless them. It's things we do. And uh, what I tried to show you last night was when we move in obedience to God, then he does the part we cannot do. He fills our hearts with the things uh, that we can't change, and pours out his grace upon us. Now, we'll go back to the first evening. Uh, remember I told you that uh, some people say that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's a very good definition of grace. Uh, <clears throat> the only problem with that is, what are we talking about here? Uh, we need to define what that is. And I told you that Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 has the best definition of grace in the whole Bible, even though that word grace is not there. It says, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Here's heaven. And there is God's unlimited wisdom. There's his unlimited power. There's his unlimited uh, uh, forgiveness, there's his unlimited mercy. I mean, all the characteristics unlimited that God has. There they are. And the Bible says in First Ephesians chapter 1, the verse I just quoted to you, verse 3, that all of that is available to us through Christ. So all of those incredible characteristics that God has are available to people like you and me. And remember, I quoted you the verse, and I, I, I really... I want you to understand that verse in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, which says God is able to make all grace abound, that means unlimited, towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound unlimited to every good work. And so there is no excuse for us not to move in obedience. The feelings, we may not be able to generate those. And that's why the Bible says everything is predicated upon the knowledge. If we don't understand what God wants us to do, if we don't understand his characteristics, if we don't understand uh, what he wants to see on this earth, then we don't move in the right way. I told you last night that God is ready to back up with all of heaven's resources every time God sees one person who is moving in obedience to him. He, he supports that with all of heaven. But he waits till you make the move. He doesn't uh, give you the grace until he sees you responding the way he wants you to respond. And I told you that key is in Romans chapter 6 where it says we're to reckon ourselves dead unto sin. Sin has no power to make us do something wrong. 
And then we yield our members, and then the grace is poured into the experience. So that was uh, what we talked about last night. Uh, And I have a couple more yet to talk about. If you look at chapter 6, it says, lead us not into temptation. So we need to pray against temptation. Now what's he talking about? He's not talking about not being led into trial. He will lead us into trials because he wants to perfect our faith. It says our faith is more precious to God than gold, and he wants, just like people do with gold, to burn out all the dross, and trials is how that's done. He tried Job. And so Paul understood this better than I sometimes do because he said, I glory in tribulations. Uh, Could I have a raise of hand? How many of you glory in tribulations? Well, you're like me. You haven't gotten as far as Paul. Then he tells us why. He says, tribulation works patience. Now, the biblical definition for patience is not just gritting your teeth and enduring. Patience is cheerful endurance. Check the word. That's what the Greek word means. It means cheerful endurance. And Paul says that trials generate patience. Because if you've been through trials often enough and say, been there, done that, you know what's going to happen after the trial, and so you can cheerfully endure, okay? It works patience. Then he says patience works experience, which is character, which is what God wants. And then character works hope. Like I said, been there, done that. You know what's gonna, how it's going to come out before it happens. And then hope, he says, generates love. So when you pray for love, you're probably pray, pray, praying for trials. <laughs> because trials are going to give you patience, which is going to give you character, which is going to give you hope, which is going to give you love. It's going to tenderize your heart and give you the perspective you need to, to exercise the love that God wants you to exercise. And so... He's not talking about not leading us into trial. We will be led into trial. Guaranteed you will be. The trying of your faith is something very precious to God. But what he's praying for is that we won't be led into temptation. Because in the trial, there's a very fine line between the trial and temptation. The temptation is to blame the problem, the the suffering, on God or somebody else. That's what we're to be kept from. We're to endure the trial with patience, cheerful endurance, without blaming God, without getting on the telephone or whatever and blaming other people. That's where it turns into sin. And Paul is asking, or Jesus is telling us to pray against temptation. Jesus never took uh, deliverance for granted. You find him in the garden, pleading with his father before that tremendous trial. We talked about that last night. We realize the deadly danger and possibility of sin. And so we pray to God when in the middle of our trials, don't allow us to sin. Don't allow us to blame others or blame you. I want you to turn to a hymn in the hymnal. It's 697. And we'll sing this hymn uh, between the sessions. 697. My concern in these meetings is that we make this just as practical as we can make them. Make, make this. We often talk in generalities about these spiritual realities, but I want us to know how they actually work uh, and, and how God responds uh, to our uh, response. This is written by the Wesleys. There are two things about the Wesleys that you have to appreciate, regardless of what disagreements we have, and we have disagreements. They baptized babies. They were part of the Church of England. I'm not sure about non-resistance, so there were those differences. But... And they were important. But the Wesleys were committed to holiness. And uh, 
That's what you see. And a tremendous devotion to Christ. I want a principle within a watchful, godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to even feel it near. Help me the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire, to catch the wondering kindling fire before it actually happens. From thee that I no more may stray, no more thy goodness grieve, grant me the filial, that's the relationship between a son and a father, grant me the filial all I pray, the tender conscience give, quick as the apple of an eye, that's the pupil of your eye, which is the thing you protect more than anything else, quick as the apple of an eye, O God my conscience make, awake my soul when sin is nigh, and keep it still awake. Almighty God, well I want to read you the third verse which I didn't put in the hymnal, because... <laughs> The Wesleys, I think, sometimes got a little carried away. Uh, the third verse says, If to the right or left I stray, that moment, Lord, reprove, and let me weep my life away for having grieved thy love. And, and it, he talks in, further in the verse, and I see I forgot to write it down. Uh, let me believe that even the slightest omission is wickedness. And uh, that's how he talks. Almighty God of truth and love, to me thy power impart, thy burden from my, the burden from my soul remove, the hardness from my heart. O may the least omission pain my reawakened soul, and drive me to that grace again, which makes the wounded whole. So, the last thing here, and I need to hurry because uh, we have a lot to cover tonight. He says, deliver us from evil. Uh, the technical definition for that term actually in the Greek is the evil one, and that's how I always pray it. Deliver me from the evil one. Uh, this is the subconscious cry of every heart. David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Paul says, O wretched man that I am, deliver me from the body of this death. We all want the freedom to be our best. We want to be delivered from evil. We want to be delivered from sin. We want to rise above that. We want to be conquerors of our anger, our pain, our bitterness, our disappointment, our anxiety, our poverty, our broken dreams and broken hopes. We all want to be delivered from that and live above those things. I like the song in the hymn that says, O life in whom is life indeed, through whom our best desires are freed. I love that. Okay? It's encouraging that Jesus recognized evil as a reality. I talk to people on the phone all the time who do not believe in the reality of evil. They think man is basically good. And if we just had just a little bit better education, a little bit better culture, everybody would live the way they're supposed to live. Jesus never believed that. He assured us that there was real evil and that God was on our side. And then we conclude, for thine is the kingdom. It's his kingdom, not ours. I told you the first appearance of the word kingdom is in Exodus 19.6, and it's, God says, you will be unto me a kingdom of priests. We are simply mediating God's grace to a lost world. We are not, the kingdom does not belong to us. We acknowledge his final authority in everything, and our passion is that the world would see the glory or the excellence of the character of God, and that must be a passion of our hearts, Okay. To show what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed Jesus. That should be the passion of this congregation. And every person's decisions and activities should reflect that. That they want this congregation to be the most beautiful, the most perfect example of the excellence of God's character that this congregation can possibly display to the world. So let me quickly run down through what we did in this message. And I definitely abbreviated this last part. Pray as sons. Pray as brothers, pray with reverence, 
pray for reverence, pray for a realization of his kingdom, pray for obedience, pray for necessities, pray for forgiveness, pray against temptation, and pray for deliverance. I told you last night, it's all in this prayer. There's a song in the hymnal that says, and help us each and every day to live more nearly as we pray. If we could live this prayer, we would basically pretty well fulfill the entire gospel. So that's the message uh, on the kingdom prayer. Now I'd like to talk about the ideal resistance. We could have entitled this non-resistance. And the Bible says, Jesus said, do not resist evil men. So non-resistance is a bi- sort of a biblical phrase. However, I think sometimes it gives us sort of the wrong concept that we are just supposed to be sort of passive, just not fight back. But Jesus wants us to resist evil, not only in our own lives, but in the world. So I've never quite liked that idea of non-resistance. Let me tell you a story. In the late 1700s, in the early 1800s, the Methodist circuit riders were going throughout their parishes preaching the gospel. One of those was Jesse Lee. Now this story was told years later to Lee's nephew. The nephew's name uh, was in the store attracted the attention of an old man who told this story. He told it to Jesse's relative. This old man said, as a youth, I went one night to hear Jesse Lee preach. The church was packed and I was only able to sit just outside the door. And he said, a group of us young people got a little bit rowdy and were making a little bit of disturbance. And Jesse Lee, he said, I must say, very kindly rebuked us. But it disgraced our, my, my, me and my family. And it made me so angry that I was determined I was going to whip this man before he went home. But somehow he managed to leave and This man that was telling the story did not see him leave, and so that didn't happen. Thirteen years passed, and he said, I thought the incident was forgotten. And then he said, I had business in Petersburg, and I saw an old man in a two-wheeled carriage as I left, and it looked to me like Jesse Lee. And I thought, well, it's foolish to do this now. Thirteen years have gone by, I've practically forgotten it. But then the word coward came into my head, and all the rage against that man returned, and I determined I was going to carry this out. So I pulled my carriage up beside him, and I said, are you Jesse Lee? And he said, yes. He said, do you remember that incident? And he described it, Jesse said, yes, I remember that incident. He said, I vowed that night that I was going to whip you, and I plan to do that now. And Jesse said, well, you're a young man, I'm an old man, and if we did that, you would definitely win. But not only that, the Bible says the servant of God is not to strive. So if you'll give me time to get down off of my carriage, you can whip me as long as you want to. The young man said, I was suddenly overcome with horror at what I had said and what I was planning to do. And I was trembling from head to foot. I got on my horse and I rode away from there as fast as I could go. This could hardly be called non-resistance. It's resistance, as I observe, of the highest order. There was resistance against an evil that a young man had in his heart. And, And the response of Jesse Lee overcame it, 
He overcame evil with good. And so that's why I call this the ideal resistance. We need to resist evil, and we need to resist it effectively. We're here to drive back the darkness of this world. We all intuitively know something must be done about evil. Evil cannot be allowed to reign. Before the flood, it says God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The earth was also corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. We all sense that cannot be allowed to continue. Of course, God did, and he brought a flood. Well, after the flood, God instituted a way to check evil. Whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So we've had sort of a progress down through history of different ways of dealing with evil. The first is unlimited revenge. It's Lamech. I've killed a youth who attacked and wounded me. And if Cain will be revenged seven times for anybody that harms him, I shall be revenged 77 times. That's unlimited revenge. That's the law of the jungle. It does something about evil, but it inflicts more injury than what it has been received. And the result would be mutual self-destruction. I saw a bumper sticker that said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So, there had to be a better way. And that brings us to the Old Testament, which institutes limited revenge. Two principles in limited revenge. Number one, the revenge, or the retribution, let's use the word retribution, the retribution may only be exactly the amount that was suffered. If it was an eye, then it was, an eye was given, okay? And the second thing that probably was even more important, it was placed in the hands of a judge, not the person who was injured. It was placed in the hands of a judge, a third party, okay? Uh, <clears throat> life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, but it was to be in the hands of the judge. Well, that was the first step toward a better society. The next step is also in the New Testament. Limited love. Love your neighbor, love your friend, and hate your enemy. You say, was that in the Old Testament? Doesn't the Bible say, uh, love your neighbors yourself? I would like for you to turn to where that is. Uh, would you turn to Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18? This is often pointed out. It's a very familiar passage. We're starting to read at verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother. Notice it says brother. In thine heart, thou shalt, not, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. In other words, you should rebuke him, but you shouldn't hate him. Now here's the verse that we often quote. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So this is only for your Jewish neighbor. Okay? Now, the man who came to question Jesus on this, he knew that. And so when the passage was quoted, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, he said, and who is my neighbor? He knew that it did not include those Samaritans. It only included the Jews. That's why he asked that question. Because 
In the Old Testament, let me read you some passages so you can write these down and look them up at home. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to their tenth generation shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. That's your non-Jewish neighbor. About Amalek, thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, thou shalt not forget it. So, in the Old Testament, we had limited uh, <clears throat> love. Love your Jewish neighbor. Don't ever hold a grudge against him. Don't ever hate him. These other people, yeah, that's different. You probably didn't know that. That is the Old Testament. All right? But we're making progress. We've come from unlimited revenge to limited revenge to limited love. And now we come to unlimited love. Now, this isn't the standard of the Old Testament, but it is hinted at in the Old Testament, very beautifully. Remember when Elisha was pursued by the king of Syria? Because the king said, somebody's telling my secrets because these Israelites are always ahead of me. And they said, no, 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 there's a prophet that uh, hears from God, and he tells them, and that's why they're always ahead of you. And the king said, go get him. So they went, and he was at Dothan, and he asked God to blind the army, and he led them into the capital city of Samaria, and they closed the gates. And the king said, shall I smite? Here was his chance. The Syrians had been, if you read, had been just a major problem to the Israelites for years. And here was a chance to get rid of them once and for all. And Elisha said, no. Would you destroy captives that you took in war? These are captives. Feed them and send them home. And they did. And it says that they didn't cause any trouble for many, many years after that. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master, so the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Now I'm going to read you some other quotes from the Old Testament. Proverbs 20, 22. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord, and he will save thee. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. We have that in the New Testament, but that's in the Old Testament. This one's even more interesting, Proverbs 24, 29. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to every man according to his work. And this one may surprise you that it's in the Old Testament, Proverbs 25, 21. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. That's an Old Testament quote. So this points to this higher ideal of unlimited love, okay? So we have in the Old Testament the ideal anticipated, and now we have Jesus asserting it. So we have the ideal asserted. He says, resist not evil. That really should have been translated, resist not an evil person. But we are to resist evil, but we have to be careful how we resist evil, okay? Because it was a change from the Old Testament. Remember, Elijah one time called down fire on people who were sent from the king to capture him. He called down fire from heaven and destroyed them. The disciples wanted to do that one time to some people, some Samaritans that were hindering Jesus' progress toward Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Wait a minute. Didn't Elijah do that with God's approval? No, we're changing. Yes, but things are changing here. Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. 
For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Now, here's where most Christians want to take the exit ramp. <laughs> they say this makes no sense, that you would not in some way use force against evil. So then they go to Jesus' teaching about the two swords. Well, see, he told them to take swords. Well, what would two swords accomplish against a Roman legion to begin with? And secondly, we know how one of those swords was used. You know, Peter used one to cut off the high priest's ear, and Jesus healed that ear, and he gave them this tremendous statement, put your sword in its sheath, Peter. All they that take the, that take the sword shall perish by the sword. So I think the two swords were given for that object lesson. You can have your opinion on it, but I certainly don't think Jesus was advocating the use of those swords to, to resist the people who were coming to arrest him. That wouldn't make any sense, really. Or then maybe they'll go to Cornelius, and they'll say, well, Cornelius came, and, and uh, he was a centurion, and Jesus said he had tremendous faith, and he never asked him to leave the Roman army. Well, he came to be, plead on behalf of his slave, and Jesus didn't say anything about slavery either. So if we're going to read between the lines, if we're going to argue from silence, well, then I guess that passage also supports slavery. And believe you me, that passage was used by preachers who preached in favor of slavery. Let's turn to Romans 13. You have to understand a few things here. Romans 13. This pictures the kingdom of heaven in a real world. I want you to notice in verse 4 the pronouns. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be not afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject. You see that? He's talking about two groups of people. He's talking about him and you. Well, they say, doesn't it say he's a minister of God? Well, who was the emperor? It was Nero. God also calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. God also called Cyrus his servant. It's just simply mean people who are carrying out God's will, whether it's a will to do retribution or whatever, it doesn't mean they're going to be blessed. In fact, Habakkuk found out that once God uses this nation to punish this nation, then he used another nation to punish that nation, and he, you know that's how that works. It doesn't mean because they're doing something God told them to do that they're going to be blessed. He uses the wrath of men to praise him. And... Uh, so that doesn't uh, hold any water. <clears throat> Cyrus is called a shepherd, believe it or not. And he shall perform all my pleasure. Okay? Now I want to talk a little bit about war. We find in this passage he talks about obeying for conscience sake. The conscience is a very sensitive part of our being that basically nudges us toward what's right with, with a strong encouragement to do what's right. Well, what happens to the conscience in war? Well, I live near the Gettysburg battlefield, so I can tell you a little bit about what they discovered there. 
The potential killing rate at Gettysburg, they say, was 500 to 1,000 per minute. The actual killing rate was one or two per minute. Why? Well, when they picked up the muskets after the battle, they found that 90% of them were still loaded. More than half of them had multiple charges. So here were people acting like they were helping with the war, but they never fired their gun. They kept loading them. In fact, one musket had 23 charges in it. The survivors said many people shot over the heads, and many people refused to shoot. That tells us something. There's something in the conscience of every person that does not want to kill. A strong conscience against killing, in fact. Even in World War II, only 15 to 20 percent fired any weapons. And the United States knew that if they were going to win wars in the future, that had to change. And so they used brutal conditioning. They used role modeling. Dean Taylor said they stood for hours yelling, yelling this, kill, kill with cold blue steel. Just yelling that is, can you imagine the psychological effect of that? Or what makes the grass grow? Blood makes the grass grow. What makes the grass grow? Blood makes the grass grow. He said we stood for hours shouting that till we were in a rage against the enemy. In the Korean War, they got the rate up to 55% of the soldiers who were willing to kill. And by Vietnam, they had it up to 90%. But it was that, the kind of things that destroyed the conscience. And yet it says we're supposed to have a conscience. Violence corrupts. At the outset of World War II, both the United States and the United Kingdom condemned the Germans who, for the first time in history, bombed civilians, bombed cities and destroyed hospitals and innocent people, children. And the U.S., Roosevelt, and Churchill both condemned that. They said, this is wrong, this is immoral. But later in 1940, in their desperation, they began to bomb German cities. In 1942, the obliteration of bombing of cities began. And in 1943, the U.S. joined that bombing. And finally, they bombed Dresden so severely that they created a firestorm. How many of you know what a firestorm is? A firestorm is where you have a fire that gets created that becomes so hot that the winds to support that fire rush into the center with hurricane force and sweep everything into the center of that inferno. Dresden was a firestorm created by accident. They did not know anything about such a thing. But once they discovered that they could create a firestorm, they began doing it on purpose. This is awful. Jesus demonstrated a better way to resist. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, we have the end of that chapter talking about him taking the spoil. Oh, so there was a war, and there was a victory. And the, you take spoil when you, when you conquered. It says, therefore, at the end of chapter 20, 53, therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. 
Oh, so you win by dying. This is reverse fighting. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12. The success in this battle is based on the power of the resurrection. But we are called to a battlefield. We're called to a battlefield. But we're serving a different commander with different rules of engagement, with different goals for the conflict, and for a different accomplishment of those goals. But we're in a war. Because Paul says, endure hardness as a good soldier. For though we walk not after the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So we're in a battle. We are in a battle. And we should, we should think in, in military terms as far as resistance is concerned against the evil in our world and we should find ways to deal with it and so Jesus goes on now if you turn now to Matthew chapter 5 we're looking at the last part of this chapter or I'm sorry we're looking at uh, toward the end of the chapter verses 39 to 42 So we've had the ideal anticipated. It actually was anticipated in the Old Testament. You have coals of fire heaped on people's heads in the Old Testament, and you have a call for not returning evil for good or evil for evil. Then we have the ideal asserted by Jesus, and we talked about that. And now we have the ideal applied. How do you do do this? What are we talking about? Well, let's read it. It says in verse 38, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that you resist not an evil man. That's how I'm going to read that. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. See, you're not resisting him. You're resisting the evil that's in his heart. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. Now, we have this ideal resistance applied in four areas here. First is interpersonal relationships, okay? Somebody insults you. In fact, if he slaps you on the right cheek, if you're standing in front of me and you slap me on this cheek, you're going to have to do it with a back slap. You're going to have to go like this. This is not just pain. This is insult. A back slap would be an insult. And notice it does not tell you to to say, well, hit me on the other cheek. I mean, I've seen people do that. No, it doesn't say you're supposed to tell him to hit you on the other cheek. You're to turn the other cheek. He has to make the decision what he's going to do with the other cheek. All right? Now you're you're not on the defensive anymore. You're on the offense. You're resisting the evil that's in his heart. And he has to make a decision whether he's going to be cowardly enough to hit you on the other cheek. Your purpose is to get to his heart. Not to wound his head, but to wound his heart. That's the purpose. You're taking the moral high ground. And he finds himself standing on unfamiliar ground, facing weapons he never faced before and doesn't know how to respond to. 
And there's where the Holy Spirit has his opportunity. So that's how we handle it on a personal level. We don't say that the person's supposed to give us more injury. We give him the opportunity. And we let that work on his heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. The next one has to do with jurisprudence. It says sue. So this is a court situation. So if someone takes away your tunic, he says give them your cloak also. Now, Exodus 22, verses 26 and 27 said that the, the, a, a person did not have a right to another person's cloak. They could take it for a pledge, but they had to give it back by evening because the cloak was the poor man's covering for the night. But this says you have no rights. You have no rights, just responsibilities to resist evil. Again, this is taking the offensive. This is causing the person... <laughs> To have to make a decision. Is he going to take the cloak, which in a Jewish context, he knew he had no right to. But you're giving it to him. And then letting him decide. Or politics. What about laws that oppress, like the Romans? Said if a man compels you to go a mile, you had to do that. That was Roman law. What do you do with oppressive laws? We just had masks and a whole bunch of stuff with COVID. What do you do? Well, he says, you offer to go the second mile. I would like to ask you, where does the second mile begin for the Christian? <laughs> I kind of think it begins with the first mile. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> this is active resistance, and love is powerful. We conquer not by the quality of muscle, but the, by the quality of spirit. And we're responding in ways that the Holy Spirit can put tremendous pressure on the heart of the person. We, I told the story the other night of Pastor Peter with the people taking off the thatch, and he fed them breakfast, and they went and put the thatch back on. It won't always end that way, but let's say it this way. If that kind of res uh, response to people does not get to their heart, nothing will. This is the most powerful thing we can offer. And then finally, business. Give to everyone that asks of thee, and of him that would bar thee, turn thou not away. Now, it doesn't say you have to give them exactly what they ask. It doesn't say that. Uh, Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but I'm going to give you something. We should give something. In fact, we should give them what they need rather than what they ask. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> this is the righteousness that exceeds. This is the righteousness that goes beyond. This is a righteousness that fulfills the hints of the Old Testament, and finally is the society God always intended. I tell people the reason I'm non-resistant, the reason I don't vote, the reason I don't get involved in government, I'm representing a society before government was needed. I'm trying to demonstrate what society would look like without the need for force. And if I get involved in voting and coercion, which is what that involves, I'm violating the picture that God wants us to give, the ideal society that does not need coercion, that does not need pressure, Demonstrating that ideal to the world. Is this practical? People often say to me, suppose somebody attacks your family. Well, here's an answer you can give them. It's assumed that if you pull out a gun, you're going to win. That's not to be assumed at all. In fact, police studies have shown, because they're always studying how to defuse these violent situations, and their studies have shown that probably you have the best advantage. It's not guaranteeing anything to anybody, but you have the best advantage if you're not armed. 
Now, I mean, that's police study. That's not Bible. That's police study. That you're more likely to survive, or as likely to survive, and probably a bit more likely to survive if you do what Jesus said. For the first 200 years of the Roman Empire, Christians obeyed this, what I'm discussing tonight. And people can study the history. For 200 years, they obeyed this. And then they compromised because emperors got involved. And of course, they had armies. So then you had clever theologians like Augustine who came up with a justification for Christians to use violence. If you talk to people about that, they'll say, well, in the Roman army, they had to uh, sacrifice to the emperor more than the people out there did. They had to do it regularly. So that's why the Christians uh, did not want to be in the army. And that's why that's 200 years of non-resistance took place. Well, I want to read you what they said. That's not what they said. They said, our prayers defeat all the demons who stir up war. Those demons also lead persons to violate their oaths and to disturb the peace. In other words, this whole thing that you're talking about is inspired by demons, and our prayers are against that. Accordingly, in this way, we are much more helpful to the king than those who go into the field to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs when we join self-denying exercises to our righteous prayers. In other words, self-denying exercises of service. They outserve their generation. Which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led away by them. So none fight better for the king than we do. Indeed, we do not fight under him even if he demands it. Yes, we fight on his behalf, forming a special army, an army of godliness, by offering our prayers to God. And if he would have us lead armies in defense of our country, let him know that we will do this too. And we do not do this for the purpose of being seen of men or for the vainglory. For in secret and in our own hearts, our prayers ascend on behalf of our fellow citizens as for priests, so Christians are benefactors of their country more than the others. That's the reason they gave. And so I'm going to conclude this just simply by saying, let's take this challenge of Jesus to resist evil, but to do it with the ideal resistance. Do it in a way that God can get to the heart. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Our Father, we thank you tonight for your love and for Jesus demonstrating this non-resistant love. And I just pray that we would be able to demonstrate it effectively so that evil will in fact be defeated because violence simply generates more violence. Help us to know that this is a matter of faith, that we can trust the power of the resurrection as we exercise ourselves in obedience to what you've told us. In Jesus' name we pray.